Um, this morning we're going to be a little bit different in the sense that we're going to study uh, Jonah chapter 2. We're reading the book of Jonah together this morning um, and over the course of the past next four weeks. Now, this morning will be the most famous part of the story of Jonah, the part that even if you don't really know the Bible very well, you may be familiar with. And so because we can get to the place where these things kind of have a lullaby effect, we've heard them before and we kind of put the dots together, what we'll do this morning to, to, dis- to disrupt that is we'll hear the reading of God's word from Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 through the end of chapter 2, but then we'll break that down in little sections this morning through the lenses of our particular stories, a couple different stories in our room. And the goal for that is not to elevate the storytellers, but to maybe help you be in touch and access maybe the moments where you felt like Jonah. The moments where you have felt your own belly of the fish. Whether it's something that happened in the rearview mirror, something you feel happening in the days to come, or just the place you are today. So thanks for being here. Uh, Let's listen and hear and receive Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2. verse 17 through chapter 2 verse 10. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths into the very heart of the seas and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The belly of the fish. (laughs) I don't know if you've literally been there, but I'm sure metaphorically you have felt the feelings of the belly of the fish. The place where uh, all of the pretense of control is gone. Right Up to this point, Jonah, who runs the other way from the place he's being called... Who, who sits in front of the sailors and says, throw me into the sea because I'd rather be dead than do what God would want me to do. In all of those things, there is a sense of control. But not in the belly of the fish. It's the place where the denial and the escapism and the medicating collide. And, and, and you have to receive reality for what it is if there's any hope of going forward right and for Jonah even throwing himself overboard this looks this is not what he scripted 
there are all kinds of books you can find on Amazon, at your favorite bookstore, on how to wake up spiritually. But I don't think there's anything that replaces the, the, the wake-up call of feeling like you are in a place where you are stuck. Where all the running, where all the escaping has stopped. Or where all the things you thought you knew or all the things you were trying to balance have come to a head. That is the belly of the fish. That is the part of the story we want to highlight and pay attention to today. For Jonah, for just a few moments in this very short book, Jonah wakes up. <laughs> he wakes up to a reality of coming to the end of himself. He, he, in his distress, cries out. This is the kind of story where it doesn't get told after everything is wrapped up and pretty. From the thick of the, the, the stuckness, he cries out to God. And Jonah tells us, God answered. He doesn't tell us all of how, and he doesn't tell us how it all sorts out in his mind. But he tells us that God listened to his cry from the lowest and darkest and smelliest of places. In verse 8, he tells us, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. I want to ruminate on that thought for a moment. Because I think we can understand and get a glimpse of the reality that God uh, meets Jonah in the pit. Even if we don't feel that ourselves in a time of stuckness, it's an idea that maybe we can get our head around. That in our distress, God wants to meet us in the pit. But I think part of what I would highlight for your consideration this morning as we think about the ramifications of the belly of the fish or that sometimes in the belly of the fish, we don't just see God's presence meet us, we also meet ourselves. We meet the fundamental assumptions, the things that we've clung to, that got us there. I mean, even if we're in a situation where the thing that we're dealing with isn't our fault, was, was propagated by other people, someone else sent the fish to swallow us, so to speak, there's still a confrontation with how we've carried the weight and the baggage of our moment. When, when he says those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, it moves from this thing he's thought about the Ninevites that would make them unworthy of receiving his call to begin with to, to a message rooted in, probably for himself, all the things he's trusted in himself that have gotten him to this place. To be in touch with the belly of the fish, right? To experience those moments is often to have a confrontation and an invitation to reflect on and pay attention to our own brokenness. In August of 2012, I came to the end of a residency in Annapolis where we had started a church and it had been really successful. And we stood up in front of people and the very launch Sunday had said to everybody, we're pregnant with a church and it's there's Scott, and he's going to plant it, and yay, you know. And, and it had gone really well, but then like, when that moment came to, like, launch and do the thing, it was really weird to sort of make that gear shift. However, where I'm different from Jonah, and my story differs from Jonah, is I think I've never, I, like, I never 
Amber and I would tell you in our 20 years of marriage, moving to Baltimore to plant a church is one of the things we had a clearer call about than anything else we've wrestled with in our marriage. We knew that it was the right thing to do. We knew it was disruptive to, to follow through with that. We were excited and we had built a team around us. I mean, it was, it was really good. And, and that team rallied around us. They packed up our moving vans. They dropped us off here with gusto and excitement. And then, just on August 1st, I just felt profound weight. The weight of telling a bunch of people you're going to do a thing and you're not really sure it's going to happen. The weight of leaving a community that you built and friendships and relationships we had really invested in. The uncertainty of what was to come, some really strange things that happened uh, in our interaction with neighbors in our early days of Baltimore. And so there was this dissonance between like a church community in Annapolis that was like, do you love it? Is it awesome? Tell us the stories of what God's doing. And me going, just the feeling like I've made a mistake. I'm an imposter. I can't do this. I do not have the chops for this. Why did anybody think that I am the person that should move here and do this thing? I couldn't sleep. I felt like I was a fraud everywhere I went for months. The journey was, was an invitation, I think, to receive help and love from God to be sure but it was also a time where I was discerning the ways I had taken a call that I had felt and just decided that it was my job to pick up the boulder and do it all myself. And the confrontation was, was one to say not just what is the weight. It is a heavy weight to move to Baltimore and start a thing. But it's also how are you carrying that particular thing? And I think that was the invitation to pay attention to. Not just what is God going to do here in the belly of the fish, but how is God showing me the dangers of trying to do this thing all in my own power? It was, it was constantly hitting a wall. I would love to tell you that it was quick, it was easy, or comfortable. It was none of those things. But what it was was an invitation to see the original premise I had been invited to. That the position of Savior had been taken. That God loves Baltimore more than I love Baltimore. That God loves God's church more than I love God's church. And that, that to put myself in the seat of carrying the weight and burden of all the things that were going to happen in the next decade would crush me. And so to allow God to meet me in that place and to carry that process properly was an invitation in the belly of the fish. I want to invite us to continue to consider how that lands in your story. What, what you may be invited to consider as we continue to sing and reflect together. The band will come to the stage and um, just spend the next few minutes uh, Reflecting on the invitation in our own belly of the fish stories to, to receive and hear um, and be in touch with 
the unwinding of the, the ways in which we've carried the story so that we might see and meet the love of God there. Um, if you guys don't know me, I'm Katie Hubbard, and I'm the worship director here at the Foundry. And um, we're in the belly of the fish today. But before Jonah gets into the belly of the fish, um, he was headed a very different place, a city called Tarshish that was um, just a city of relative safety and worldly comforts that was in the complete opposite direction that God was calling him to. And I got together uh, this week with a couple of my friends for Taco Tuesday, and we, were, we started talking about Jonah because we're going through it here in our church, and um, we kind of asked each other, what is your Tarshish? Meaning, like, what is this picture of the good life that you would set sail for in that um, situation? And since I have a microphone, I'm going to tell you mine. And it's embarrassingly boring. Like, actually, boring is the operative word in my picture of Tarshish. Like, there's nothing that this girl wants more than a stable, steady, blessedly boring, unexcited life. That is my Tarshish. I think there's probably adventurous types here in this room who are like, your dream is terrible. Get a better dream. Like, ew. But there's a reason, there's a reason why boredom is so attractive to me. And it's because my childhood was the very opposite of boring. Um, like many of you in this room, um, my childhood was marked by turmoil and upheaval and uh, trauma um, things like mental illness and addiction and divorce and sexual abuse and suicide have touched my family's life. And by the time I was a teenager, I was like, okay, when I'm in charge, when I'm steering this ship, I'm setting course for a very different life, and it is going to be boring, white picket fence, vanilla, boredom. Like, that. that is what I wanted so bad. I, and I'll be honest with you, I'm still so tempted by what would feel like such safety to me. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but um, when you want something so bad, it's really easy to start thinking that surely God wants that for you too. Um, in the faith community that I grew up in, Philadelphia, um, where I'm from, I started to internalize this message as I was this teenager being like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write the ship. I'm going to fix this when it's my turn to be in charge. Um, I internalized this message that how to get there was just not make the mistakes that my family had made. You know, I was going to study the word. I was going to do what it says. I'm going to, um, you know, uh, make good decisions, avoid sin at all costs, and um, that this good life could be mine. It would be attainable to me through that, those means. And um, I... Uh, I, I, I kind of set out, like, as straightforward as it is, I was like, I'm going to be the goodest girl, and I'm going to get there. I, I, like, made my siblings look really bad by following all the rules and getting good grades and serving at my church and going on missions trips and dating, um, dating pastor's kids. That one's a little bit niche, a series of pastor's kids. But when I was finally a young adult, newly married, I was um, married one of those pastor's kids, and I was working full-time in a church, and I was like, here I am. I'm here. I'm on the deck of the ship I built, and I'm headed for Tarshish. And, of course, because we're telling the story of Jonah, a massive storm blew into my life, just a perfect storm. And I can't get into the details of it because I'm already running long, and I can't summarize to save my life. So I'll just suffice it to say that I was in a really unsafe 
unjust situation. I really needed help. I reached out for that help, and the people, the powers that be that I went to, turned their backs on me. They happened to be church leaders. So that was devastating to me. It was felt like I was punted overboard um, by the uh, people I trusted most, and I was drowning in a sea. Um, I was swallowed up by something. Scott said earlier that you meet yourself in the belly of the fish, and that is could not be more true. Eventually, in that dark place, I really had to confront the, the truth that I am not the goodest girl, that in fact, I carry all of that childhood trauma with me everywhere I go. It's in my bones, and I can't outrun that. But I didn't just meet myself in the belly of the fish. I wasn't alone in there. There was someone, there was someone in there with me. Scott zeroed in on this verse, Jonah 2.2, so I guess we're supposed to really pay attention to it this morning. Um, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and he listened to my cry. Scott has already touched on that. Like, Jonah, we don't know what God answered Jonah. All we really know is that Jonah was crying out for help, and God was listening. And somehow listening, just that, like, changed things for Jonah. And I, I so deeply relate to that. I feel so similarly because when I was in that place experiencing the presence of God, I can't really explain it to you other than I was crying out and there was someone listening. I was telling him things like, I don't trust your people anymore. I don't understand your scripture anymore. And I'm not even sure that I can trust my own thoughts about you anymore. And I'm, I'm terrified. But while I was saying that, I'm not sure if you're real, I was feeling someone right here with me listening listening to that as I deconstructed my faith. Um, deconstruction is kind of a buzzy word in church circles, and it gets a bad rap, but if your picture of God is so small and so man-made that it, it resembles more of an idol than God himself, then that, that, that junk has got to be deconstructed. Idols need to be smashed. Um, I lost my spot. <laughs> my picture of God, because I was like so attached to what I was looking for, what I was longing for the most, it was coloring in my picture of God. It was making him so much smaller, putting him in a box that can't possibly contain him. I needed to deconstruct that. I needed to uh, just sit there with him and smash those bad ideas together piece by piece. And I can't explain it any better than that, that there was someone with me helping me break all these bad, small ideas of him so that he could be something more vast and mysterious to me. Um, I came away from that experience with something so much better than certainty, something so much better even than this, like, justice that I craved because I was very angry at what happened to me, and I wanted justice. I didn't feel I was getting what I deserved. But instead, I walked away with something even better than that, picture of justice. I walked away with this picture of just a vast God who is so much bigger than even my biggest thoughts of him, Verse 8 is the other verse that really, like, stuck to me. So, again, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And I believe that. I believe the converse is true, too, that deconstructing idolatrous ideas about God will lead us back to his heart. And is, what is his heart? Now, this is interesting. Jonah really struggles with God's heart. He struggles with it all the way to the end of the book. I love that he doesn't have, like, a nice little bow on the end of that. Um, you see, in the book of Jonah, God loves Jonah, and he loves Jonah's enemies, the Ninevites. 
He loves them both. He's pursuing them both. He's rescuing them both. He doesn't seem much interested in giving people what they deserve, which is a hard one for me. That's a hard one for me. We'll see that next week, that neither Jonah nor the Ninevites are going to get what they deserve. We're going to see all through the book of Jonah that God is just showing up in places that we don't think he should be. He's doing things that we don't think he should do. He's loving me. He's loving the people who hurt me. He's loving the Israeli. He's loving the Palestinian. He's loving the Democrat. He's loving the Republican. His mind is so much bigger. His heart is so much bigger than the the box that we sometimes put him in. He's a powerful God with a mind of his own, which is kind of terrifying sometimes, especially when I'm like, I think it's very likely that his plan for my life is not going to be boring. (laughs) I like boring. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And while they're setting up, I just want to read a couple lines from one of my favorite books by one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. And when confronted by the idea of the lion Aslan, who's supposed to be a picture of God, Lucy asks, is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Mr. Chumness, uh, Tumness chimes in and he says, he's not a tame lion. And part of worshiping, we're going to worship again together. Part of worshiping God as he is instead of God as we, we want him to be is embracing mystery and a holy unknowing and just humbly recognizing that God is just bigger than our biggest thoughts of him and that even when we fully can't understand him that we can trust that he is up to something good. So let's lean into that as we, as we sing this next song. Um, This spring, I got to spend some time in Northern Ireland with some friends from the foundry um, on an experience trip. And while we were there, our local leader, he told us, hey, um, today I'm going to take you on a wee dander. And if you're not up on your Irish slang, um, we mean small or short. And a dander is like a leisurely stroll. Um, So we got in the van, we drive to the trailhead. And when we get there, I quickly realize... This is not going to be we, and this is not a dander. Because where he took us was to the Mourn Mountains. This was what, what this ended up being was a six-mile hike up the side of Sleeve Binnigan, one of the tallest mountains in Northern Ireland. Um, it was great. Uh, I have what's called athletic-induced asthma, which means give me a flat surface and a moderate pace, and I'm golden. Uh, but if, you, if it involves running or an incline, my lungs basically just go... Nope, not going to happen. So I looked at this mountain, and I was like, this is going to be fun. Uh, Hopefully I can breathe. It's great. So I headed up the mountain with our team, and about a mile in, I was lagging behind. Um, I was struggling to breathe. Um, Our team just kept getting farther and farther ahead of me, and I got just scared. And when I was there, I, I went to that place in your head where you start asking the what ifs, Like, what if I have an asthma attack up here, and we are a mile up a mountain, and then however far from a hospital? Or what if my team doesn't even know how far back I am, so that if I do have an asthma attack, they don't even hear it? They don't even know that something is wrong? Or like, what if this is just where it all ends? Um, I know that's really bleak, but that is where my my mind went, because I was panicking. Um, But I kept going. And about another mile in, our team found a place to stop and catch their breath and just wait for me to catch up. When we get to this place, um, 
our, I could tell that our leader wanted to go farther. He really wanted to show our team this reservoir that supplies a lot of the drinking water for most of Northern Ireland, uh, which sounded awesome. But I was out of gas. I just couldn't do it. So I told them to go on ahead, and I would just wait in this spot for them. So as our team walked further and further away, they got out of my line of sight. I looked around, and I realized there is nobody in my line of sight, like anywhere. Like for a mile in either direction, there is no one. We were even so high up that like there weren't sheep. And my phone didn't work that high up. Like I was alone, alone. And I've never really felt that far alone before. I mean, like as a city girl, like I know my neighbor is next door when I can hear Taylor Swift coming through the walls. Like I know that she's just a wall away from me. Um, I'm never that far from people. But here, I was miles from the nearest person. And that vastness felt really jarring at first and a little scary. But then I realized there's kind of a freedom in that, that there's nobody around to see if I like do something silly or like if I sing at the top of my lungs on the top of this mountain or if I say out loud the things that I'm scared of. And so I did, I did those things. Um, I had conversation with God because who else was I going to talk to? Um, and I was able to tell him things that I had been fearing I was able to tell him things that I was just angry at him for. I was able to say, I'm really frustrated and I'm really just not sure about you in these places. And I had the most real conversation I'd had with God in a long time, simply because I had the time and the space to do it. I imagine that my sense of aloneness was just like a drop in the bucket compared to Jonah's. I was just there for like an hour and a half. Um, he was there for three days. But, and Jonah's not exactly this hero character. That He has a whole book about him in the Bible, but he's not really that great of a guy, right? Um, really, the story of Jonah could have ended at the beginning of chapter 1, where it's like, Jonah went to Tarshish, so God found somebody else. Like, that could have been the story. Or it could have ended in verse one, in one seventeen, where it says, Lord provided a fish to swallow Jonah. The end, Right? That could have been the end of the story, but God wasn't done with Jonah yet. So I like the interesting, so you can put that verse back up. It's interesting that that verse, the word in that thing that, pumped, that jumps out to me is the word provided. It says the Lord provided this fish to swallow Jonah. And usually when we're saying somebody provides something, it's like something that's useful and necessary is being given to you. Like the hotel provides towels. But this is saying God provides this fish for Jonah. But what if this fish and this time that Jonah spent in the fish were an invitation for Jonah to stop and sit in the presence of God? In this fish, in this fish Scott mentioned that God meets himself in this fish. And Katie talked about how, God, how Jonah meets God in this fish. And in the rest of chapter 2, we see that Whatever happens in this time in the belly of the fish, God sees those things, and his perspective is changed. He comes out with renewed hope for who God is and a renewed um, commitment to do what God has told him to do. And I don't want to say, I don't think at all that God provides all of the terrible things in your life. Um, that's not how God works, even though he did in this instance for Jonah but I also know that God's not going to waste those times either. 
when we get into those places, a lot of times we try to hustle and hurry our way out of the pit. And I get it because like, there's not a lot of dopamine in the valleys of our life. There's not, it's not fun to be in those places. But so often we try to hustle our way out or we try to do all of the things to numb us from feeling those pit moments. But what if God is using those places in your life as ways to turn your eyes back to who he is and to make you look more like him? And I look back at my own life, I can see that that's definitely true. I know that through a, like a 20-year-long chronic eye disease, God's taught me that I have to rely on other people and that it's okay to ask for help. Through um, my first job at ministry being epic failure, um, I got to work at a church with Scott, which then even led me to moving to Maryland to help plant the foundry and being on this stage with you guys today. It's through the loss of my very best friend that got showed me I was holding walls up and not letting other people in. It's through COVID that God showed me how to be alone with myself and my thoughts and not completely destroy myself with it. Like I said, God doesn't provide the bad things that happen in our life, but he's not going to waste them either. Instead, God sits down in the fish guts and the stomach acids of the fishes we find ourselves in. And he's right there with us, wanting to turn our eyes back to him and show us who we are and show us what he wants us to be and make us look more like him. I love knowing that God pursues us even when we run. It's one of my favorite things. It's great because I have a tendency to run. Um, we don't see, I see the place we see that the most evident is through what God's done with Jesus, sending Jesus to save all of us from ourselves and from our sin. We're going to move to a time of communion this morning. In the room, you're going to find there's, there's stations around the room. They're all gluten-free. Um, in just a second, we'll play some music, and you guys can get up and take those things. But let's pray as we move into that time of communion. God, I thank you so much for who you are. God, thank you for, for pursuing us when we run away. God, thank you for being close to us when we're brokenhearted. God, thank you for sitting down in the muck, in the mess of our lives and keeping us close to you. God, we love you. We thank you so much for all that you've done. It's your name we pray. Amen.